Sometimes uh, church can be a disheartening place because it seems like we emphasize grace and then we'll, we'll retract grace. When I was at seminary, my wife and I went to a church for a period where I felt like that happened every Sunday, and it was so discouraging. The pastor would get up, and he would, he would share a pastoral prayer, and the prayer was filled with such grace and such mercy. Then he'd say amen and start preaching. <laughs> and the sermon... The sermon was always on some theme that could be summarized as try harder, try harder. Now, in fairness to him, the truth is, I think I was predisposed to hear things a certain way. I'm not sure that he was as off base as as I supposed at the time, but it does strike me that that's a common experience that we have, that that we talk about grace, but then we turn right around and say, try harder, do better, and put the pressure on. So I started last week a series on faith, faith matters, what it really means to believe, and there are lots of facets to faith, and last week we talked about faith and salvation. And we saw how John makes it clear that we are saved not by doing works, but by doing the one work, which is no work, believing in Jesus Christ. That's how we receive eternal life. Paul says essentially the same thing with different language. He says we can have righteousness before God. That is, we are right with God if we do what God requires. And the one thing he requires, the only thing that he will accept is us coming to him with empty hands, confessing Jesus Christ, putting our faith in him. We put our faith in Christ and we are declared righteous from that moment. Nothing else is needed. We are saved by faith and faith alone. Paul made that so very clear. That's the message. Well, there are a lot of facets to faith. We talked about faith and salvation this morning. I want to talk about faith and works. And when you start talking about works, it's so easy to get into that same place. You give grace one week and you pull it back the next. You talk about how it's all of faith, but then you say, you know what? There's actually things you need to do. And I think it's common for us to think just that way. In fact, I'd been a Christian for at most a month. And I went to a Bible study on the LSU campus at Campus Crusade. At the time, they were called Campus Crusade. Now they're called Crew. But it was a good Bible study. It was a Bible study that focused on more or less what we talked about last week. There was a lot of Paul in that message as as the Bible study was focused on faith and grace and justification. And how is faith plus nothing? Well, I'd been a Christian almost a month. I was bursting with wisdom that I wanted to share with the world. So as the teacher was speaking, I raised an eyebrow and then raised my hand. She called on me. I said, you know, that's really true. It is faith, but but we have to keep the balance between faith and works. James said that faith without works is dead. You know, it's probably... You know, how much of the Bible have I read? Not much, but I'd read the book of James. 
In fact, while she was teaching, I was flipping through it, trying to find the exact passage. I couldn't find it, but I did remember faith without works is dead. And so I wisely said, you know, you have to balance faith and works. You can't go too far one way or the other. And, and she was very gracious to me. She affirmed what she could affirm, and then she went back to her Bible study. That was good, because in that one word, balance, I articulated what you might call the natural heresy of the earnest Christian. I said what I'll bet, I'll wager many of you have said at one time or another. You've said it, you've thought it, you've lived with this kind of gospel, and that's part of the problem you face each day. You think that we need to balance faith and works, and you might even think James says that. Well, let's look at what James has to say and see what he means And let's talk about the connection of faith and works. How are they connected? Obviously, as Christians, we're not to live just any way that the world does. We are to live godly lives. I get that. The question is, how are faith and works connected? If you think they must be balanced, that is, you think it's a faith and grace, but then don't go too far with that. You got to remember there's works and you got to balance the two. If that's what you think, if that's what you really think, then you've missed the gospel and you're living in bondage. That's true. That's true. That's just New Testament. Look what he says, James chapter two, starting at verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Skipping to verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now that's an interesting passage because James seems to be flatly contradicting Paul's doctrine that we are justified by faith alone. He says, no, it's not by faith alone. It is by faith and works. Isn't that what he says? Isn't he saying, in effect, that we have to balance faith and works? We have to keep them both in mind. It's not one or the other. It's both. Isn't that what he's saying? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. The truth is, James is not contradicting Paul. And nothing he says here takes away from what I said last week. What you have to understand is that Paul was facing a different enemy than James. Paul is dealing with people who think salvation depends on obeying Torah law. You have to reach a certain standard of personal holiness before you can be sure that God accepts you. James, on the other hand, is dealing with Christians, or at least professing Christians who are all talk and no action. 
They say they believe, but it has absolutely no impact on their lives. To the legalists, Paul says, faith without works is how you are saved. It's faith and faith alone. Nothing else counts. But then James, to these Christians who are careless in their walk, he says, listen, faith that remains alone is not real faith. See, he's talking about a different problem. He's not contradicting what Paul said. He's saying that faith alone saves, but faith that remains alone, that never shows itself in life, is not real faith. It's dead. It's dead. It's worthless. It, it does no good whatsoever. It's not the real thing. And so there's no contradiction here. What James is trying to say is that if, if you are truly putting your faith in Christ, it'll show in your life. And if there are no signs of life, then you are dead, as dead as your faith. Now, this idea of balance, James is not then saying, well, you need to balance faith and works. What James is saying is you have to pay heed to the, to the sequence here. That is, if you truly put your faith in Christ, it will make a difference in how you live. He uses Abraham as the example. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I talked about that last week. It was faith that made Abraham righteous before God. Faith and faith alone. That verse that James quotes is in Genesis 15. Years pass, and in Genesis 22, Abraham offers up his son Isaac according to God's command. James references that. In that act, Abraham shows that his faith way back in Genesis 15 was the real thing. See, his life was changed. It's not that offering up Isaac made him right with God. It's that offering up Isaac revealed the state of his heart. That's the whole point of what he's making. Now, I'm saying all of that to get to this point. It's not a matter of balancing faith, grace, and works. It's not balancing. You don't balance grace with anything else. Grace is the fundamental fact of the Christian existence. It is grace that puts you right with God, that justifies you, that breathes eternal life into you. And it is grace that changes your life from the inside out. Grace gives rise to a different form of life, to good works. Grace brings it forward. It's not balanced with it. Now, Paul makes this clear in another passage I want to read to you. Ephesians 2, in verse 8, he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Then get this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, recreated to do good works. We've been born again to do good works. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, changed on the inside, that now our hearts are inclined to live a different way. 
Elsewhere, Paul speaks of this as the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. You don't live under law. You live under grace and the spirit comes within and changes you and empowers you and you live a different life. It's a sequence. Grace comes. You respond by faith, faith alone. And out of that, subsequent to that, caused by that, you change your way of life. You don't balance the two. You you connect up with Jesus who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you're the branches. If If you remain in him, then you bear much fruit. So it's a matter of growing in our relationship with Christ, deepening in that relationship with Christ. Now, all of this means to do God's will is a natural thing for the Christian. It's a natural thing. That is, it's, it's what your heart is inclined to do. If you're a true believer, you've put your faith in Christ, you've been born again, you can never again sin with your whole heart. You can't because your heart is inclined to follow Christ. Now, I'm saying it's natural. I'm not saying it's inevitable. And I'm not saying it's automatic. Linda and I raised three girls, and whenever we brought the you know, first and second and third little baby home, um, the thing about babies I discovered is they always want to be fed. I mean, every couple hours, they're ready to eat again. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of the night, they want to eat again. Now, we, we brought home, you know, Kristen, say, our, our oldest daughter. She comes home, and in the middle of the night, she'd start crying. And, you know, there's something about moms and dads. I mean, dads are pretty worthless. I could sleep through Kristen crying. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. I, I could sleep through her crying. I might hear it. I might not hear it. Once in a while, when I did, I'd try to be a good dad, you know, and, and help Linda and do whatever I needed to do. But generally, I could sleep real easily. Linda could not. When Kristen cried, Linda woke up and she would get up. She would take her, maybe change her diaper, feed her, put her back to bed. And two hours later, she'd do it again. Now, do you think when that happened that she felt like getting up? It was natural for Linda to get up and take care of Kristen and to feed her. It was natural because she's a mom. That's what moms do. It was in her heart to do it. Do you think it was easy? Do you think she wanted to do it? I don't think she did. I'm not really sure I was sleeping at the time. (laughs) But I feel sure. I feel sure that she was exhausted. And it was like, oh, no, I don't want to get up again. It was natural for her to get up. She wanted to get up. But in a way, she didn't. She didn't. She'd have to talk herself into it. Again, I'm speculating. I was asleep. But she had to talk herself into it. It's like, if I don't get up, you know, she's just going to cry. She's going to be hungry. She's going to feel abandoned. I've got to get up. I have to get up and take care of her. And so she did it. She had to fight off her weariness, 
talk herself into doing what she wanted to do. So when we say the Holy Spirit comes within us and inclines our heart toward doing what's right, that doesn't mean it will be inevitable and automatic. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is God in your life working, but it's not as if there won't be temptations. It's not as if you won't have to wrestle with your weakness. It's not as if old habits will suddenly disappear. No, you'll have to resist those. You'll have to learn new ones. So the Christian life is a kind of battle against sin and forces of darkness. Absolutely, all that's true. But nevertheless, it's the Spirit who works in us and inclines us to want to do God's will. So when we talk about faith and works, we're not balancing them. We're saying that that faith that put me right with God, that brought me into the family, that faith is accompanied by a transformation that will change the way I live. It may be a battle sometimes. It may be a struggle. But it's not something that, it's not this external command I'm trying to obey. I'm trying to live out who I've been created to be. I've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Will I do it perfectly? Well, implied in everything I'm saying is that I won't. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall. But the really important thing to understand here is that in the process of seeking to live out your faith, you remain justified. Let me put it this way. Martin Luther, I've talked about Martin Luther a number of times lately, and that's because he was the one who rediscovered this whole doctrine of justification by faith and injected it back into the church, and it renewed believers everywhere. You're justified by faith. He had an interesting phrase to describe Christians. It's a phrase that has just reverberated through the centuries. It's helped me. It's helped countless people. Everyone who thinks that you have to balance faith and good works and you're always at risk of getting on the wrong side of God, they need to know what Luther said. Simul justus es peccator in Latin. Translated, simultaneously justified and sinner. What he's saying about the Christian is this, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ who bore your sin on the cross and God pronounces you right with himself. You are now his child, justified. The storm clouds over your head have cleared. It's a blue sky. The sun is shining. Heaven is smiling upon you. God is with you. God stands behind you. He's got your back. He's seeking to, to help you to move forward in your life. God is on your side. You're a justified believer. You're also a sinner. You fall short. You give way to temptation because of your weakness. You get knocked off balance and, and you head down a path you shouldn't go down. Well, those are very serious things and they can have serious consequences, but, but 
As you're working out these things, you need to know God does not turn against you. God still owns you as his child. I mentioned my three daughters. I mentioned Kristen, the oldest daughter. So maybe I could mention her here. So Kristen and I are a lot alike, which means we, we would butt heads a lot. In fact, today we, we laugh because pretty much she was grounded her entire 10th grade year. <laughs> there were times when, well, when something happened and she didn't much like it, she had this habit of running off, going into a room and slamming the door as hard as she could until I took the door off its hinges and took it away. I had a mom come up to me after the last service. She said, thank you so much. I am so encouraged. I just took my daughter's door off the hinges. When she said that, I thought, boy, am I encouraging the wrong thing here? I'm not sure. In fact, I sometimes have thought, you know, I'm not so sure I handled all of that just right. I look at Kristen today and I look at her family and I think, wow, we did something right. Um, She's just a wonderful young woman, but... But I'm not sure I did everything right. But here's the point I want to make. Not that you should be taking doors off hinges, but instead this. She never, never was in any doubt how she stood in the family, how we valued her, how we would do absolutely anything for her. She knew that all along. She knew that no matter what happened, I wasn't kicking her out the front door saying, don't come back. She belonged in the family. She belonged in the family. She was born into this family and she wasn't going to get out of it because she talked back to me or through anything else. When you put your faith in Christ, you are justified, but Paul also says you're adopted. And this is interesting. In the Roman world, they didn't typically adopt little babies. They adopted usually young men. The adoption would occur when some wealthy man had no son. He wanted to pass on his inheritance, and so he would adopt a a young man and make him his son so he'd have an heir. Um, That was called adopted to sonship. And Paul picks up that idea in Romans 8. He says that we all, men and women, have been adopted to sonship. What he's trying to say is we're all heirs. But here's the thing about adoption in the Roman world that's so interesting. In the Roman world, if you adopted someone as your heir, you could never disenfranchise them. No matter what happened, by law, you could never say, you know what, I've had enough of you. I adopted you, I now disown you. Couldn't do it. Once you adopt them, they're yours forever. And Paul uses that idea, this adoption to sonship, to assure us that we are children of God and our standing is never at risk, never at risk. Adopted into the family, we remain in the family forever. So while we're trying to work these things out and we're trying to learn how to live out our Christian life, We know that we are Christians by the grace of God through the faith we put in Christ. 
We know we are justified, we are accepted, we are adopted into the family, and all that remains true even while, even while we might struggle some. You might be grounded by God, disciplined by God, because of something that needs to be set right in your life. That's true, but that doesn't change your standing. That is never at risk. And so we're not talking about balancing faith and works. We're saying that faith is at the very foundation and heart of the Christian life. We put our faith in Christ and we are redeemed by Christ. That gives forth fruit, a new way of life. If there's no if there's, if there's no change in our life, then, then the faith isn't present because faith will change your life. But you won't do it perfectly, but that's okay because as you're sorting it all out and working it all out, your standing before God does not change. Listen, there have been times as a Christian over the years when I have been so discouraged about myself. It's like, Really, you've been a Christian all this time, and look at you, look at you, so discouraged about myself. And I find encouragement. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. This, this, this steep incline toward Christ-like character, <laughs> it's a challenge. It absolutely is a challenge. And most of us, you know, it's three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it feels like one step forward and three steps back. But we, we, we struggle on because we know God is good and that grace is real and that he's with us, he's on our side, and we belong to him. If you don't know that you belong to him, you can. You can know that today, and you can know, you can know for certain that you're right with God. And you can know that whatever you're dealing with, he's with you if you give your life to Christ today, if you, if you accept him as your Lord and your Savior, like McKinsey testified to earlier. If you do that, it'll change everything. So we're going to pray now, and, and, and you can pray to receive Christ, or I'll be up front right after the service. I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. People come forward all the time wanting to pray, and you want to receive Christ, I'd like to pray with you. It, can, it will be the beginning of a whole new life. But I'm also praying that this will be the beginning of a new life for some of you who've been a Christian perhaps for years, maybe your whole life. You never remember not being a Christian. That may be the case for you. My prayer is that, is that you would come to understand that there will never again be storm clouds over your head. Heaven smiles on you. God is for you. God is for you. And you work out your salvation with him. You don't work it out so that he accepts you. 
And however much you want to please God, you don't try to placate him. You don't have to. Jesus has borne our sins so that we don't have to. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, only you know each heart here. Father, sometimes we don't know our own hearts. But I think we know them well enough to know that it gets discouraging at times when, when we think about how far short we fall of, of, of the righteous way of life that you call us to. But Lord, thank you that our success or failure in obeying your commands does not change our standing before you. It doesn't change the fact that we're your children. You're our Father. You are with us and for us. We thank you for that. And what we pray is that you would help us to lay hold of that assurance and go forward in faith, being transformed from glory to glory. Help us, we pray. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who has not yet received you as Savior, may they do so now. Give them grace to do it, Lord. Help them to, to lay aside every fear and every concern that they have. May they find salvation today. Amen.